Today, we're super excited to have Dave Simeon on the show. Dave plays multiple roles in the soccer community, and he actually does, as you'll hear, have ties to the North Texas area way back and has worked with some of the, the biggest names in, in men's and women's uh, soccer, uh, leading all the way up to um, the national teams and uh, even a couple of MLS names. I thought was just absolutely uh, great to hear about. So uh, Dave currently serves as Director of Education Programs for United Soccer Coaches. He is also the president at Soccer Development Strategies, which is an organization that helps soccer clubs address a myriad of issues from programming and player and parents uh, around different uh, clubs around the country. Um, so without further delay, welcome Dave. Hello everyone and welcome to the club. This podcast is dedicated to club and travel sports. I'm your host Matt Gildon. I've spent the past 20 years getting my three kids through the sports landscape, through club and travel, all the way through to college recruiting and even a little bit beyond. There's a lot to cover in club and travel sports world, so I'm super excited to jump into it. We're going to cover it all. And again, thanks for joining and welcome to the club. So Dave, glad to have you on here. How are you doing this morning? My pleasure to be here. Everything is great in Kansas City. We are just, we're in the thralls of preparing for uh, the annual convention, which will be in Anaheim, California, uh, January 10th through 14th. And um, it seems like a long way off, but um, talking with our events managers and convention managers and it's right around the corner, so everything's going great. Well, talk a little bit more about that at a convention. What are the, the topics vary across all the aspects of, of soccer? Is it, you know, what, what, uh, what goes on there? Well, this will be the 84th annual convention. Um, there are 294 total sessions over a Wednesday through Saturday. Uh, the content of the uh, convention spans boys, girls, men's, women, youth, high school, college, professional, international. <clears throat> Historically, we've We've entertained some notables, Alex Ferguson, Carlos Quiroz, um, Bobby Robson. We've had national coaches from probably, and international managers from probably a dozen countries, both in Europe and in Asia. Um, so putting that program together, I mean, Things have changed so much. It's not only just about coaching. There's a considerable amount of time dedicated to things like performance science, um, periodization. Uh, we have a total of nine diplomas that are offered at this year's convention. Seven of those diplomas will be new. And we're developing them now with um, diploma managers. So we'll have an academy director's course. 
We have a game analysis course. It's being put together by Mike Keeney, who's coached in the Europa League. So is this is this uh, convention geared towards coaching and coaches at all the the many many levels of soccer, both here for the U.S. and also international? Is what it sounds like. Yeah, it's a very unique environment. Um, when you typically go to conferences in other parts of the world, I mean, we'll get around 8,000, 9,000 coaches at the five-day conference. Um, so it's very different because it does attach itself to everything from grassroots soccer in through the pros and the international game, both on the men's and the women's side. So there are a lot of things you can see there. There's a lot of content that's addressed that if you are a grassroots coach, you can also come and you can see sessions on the field. We have two fully built uh, fields in the Anaheim Convention Center. And so you can see field sessions, practical demonstrations. And then, of course, if you want to go listen to people that are outside of your domains, a lot now that is dedicated towards player health, player safety, psychological components. So we have people like Dan Abrams, the world-renowned um, psychologist coming in. Uh, ben Freakley will come in with that group. And then uh, we're talking to a couple of others. Just there's so much more differentiation in what goes into coaching at every mm -hmm. level now. And so that's a pretty wide array of content. Okay. Well, that sounds like a uh, very thorough and uh, extensive conference. Um, can we just back up probably a little bit and talk about like kind of your path into soccer, how you got so far into it and then maybe what was some of the turning points that led you to start helping out, uh, you know, soccer clubs across the country? My introduction, it was very different. I grew up in Northeastern Ohio. So Football, soccer was in the ethnic communities, and that's how I got introduced to it. Um, it was not a highly suburbanized sport. And where I grew up in northeastern Ohio, it wasn't Cleveland. It was Youngstown, which is, sure uh, for its time, a pretty good-sized metropolitan area, but nothing like Cleveland or Pittsburgh. So um, my pathway after I after going through playing and everything, spending some time in uh, the Navy, uh, came out and started dabbling with it, dabbling with coaching. You know, this is 1970s, getting through undergraduate school, dabbling in coaching. Um, so I think really a big step was Shellis Hyman, who eventually um, coached at SMU from Eastern Illinois and then uh, at FC Dallas was a manager there, very successful. Mm -hmm. He kind of nudged me gently to get into graduate school. And that's how I ended up in Texas in 1983 with Howard Patterson at Midwestern State University that had a really successful um men's NAIA program. So at that time, coincidentally, John Kossaboon was the state director of coaching for North Texas. And that was another individual that opened 
the doors for me to get into coaching with the state teams and the Olympic development program at that time. This is 1983-84. And a lot of things lined up. I mean, that was the very early days of um, going outside of the Philadelphia's, the San Francisco's, the New York's of players being integrated not only into the pro game, but in the national teams. So that opened a lot of doors for me. And I, I got a good taste mm-hmm. of um, what this thing was about to develop players for the next echelon. And that's really the thing that stoked me up. Um, and at that same time, getting introduced to coaching education and educating other people, other coaches at various levels. And so those things opened a lot of doors. I mean, it it didn't hurt that during that time, um, Mia Hamm fell into my lap in Wichita Falls. And so that taught me that everything that's going to happen, you can't really choreograph and plan out. Yeah, I was going to ask you, was there something, it, it seems like your time here in Texas or when you came to Texas was kind of an inflection point in, in your career. Was there something unique or untapped about North Texas and the DFW area that helped kind of springboard the, the, the coaching? Was it the talent? Was there something unique about Texas? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, that really that, helped. There was, there was a lot unique about Texas. In terms of the soccer and the talent or? First of all, Texas is not only a state, I feel like it's an attitude. It's a mentality. (laughs) And so at that time. As a Texan, I would agree with you. Yes, there's no question about it. And um, I, I believe that the people involved in that time, whether it was the players, the other coaches in the area, Uh, John is the state director of coaching. A lot of things line up that made Texas a very unique place to be. Um, So, yeah, uh, it it was a unique place that certainly had a huge impact on the rest of my coaching career. And it still is unique today. It's different, but it's, it's still very, very unique. So um, I, I treasure all of those experiences because they eventually played out into impacting my coaching and my managing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you think that's still true today? Is there still a, you know, a, a good talent base here in, in, the, in the Texas area, North Texas area? Is the game growing? Kind of what's the state of the union of club soccer? You know, we can certainly be very interested in in North Texas being from you know the DFW area, but you know, nationwide is is club soccer growing? Is it staying the same? What's 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 going on kind of state of the union wise? Well, first of all, you bring up one really good point, and that is defining talent. Um you say defining or finding. Defining, defining. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So talent, aside from the participation where there's a whole group of kids that their aspiration or their talent is not going to lead them into the upper echelons of competition, 
mm-hmm. or college or anything else. It's just playing the game. So I think when I moved to Texas, there were 55,000 kids playing in North Texas. When I left as the state director of coaching in 1999, there were probably about 80,000 kids playing in North Texas. And that number continued to grow. And probably right now there's well well in excess of 100,000 kids playing. And it's probably like some of the other very densely populated metropolitan areas or states where North Texas is probably 150, 60, 70,000 kids playing, maybe more when you add in everything, YMCA's, city recreation departments. So that is the growth of the sport. You can see it, you know, it's palpable. And then, you know, it's, then there's a factor of like, well, talent. And my experience there was always looking at kids in that 12, 13 year old kind of age range. Mm-hmm. Like, is wow. that a key age in soccer? It's, I mean, anytime talent kind of reveals itself, you, you can have talent reveal itself at 11. The question is, um, what's it going to be like at 15? Yeah. Can you sustain that? Well, talent? You know, some of its environment, some of its heredity, some of its intrinsic motivation and interest on the part of the player. So there's a lot of different things, but defining talent um, at, at that time in North Texas, even when I was the state director of coaching, that was always a big question is how do we ID it? How do we then decide who is ready for selection into the state teams and then trying to evaluate some predictors of talent mm-hmm. who can go to the regional camps and do well. So talent has always been a major interest in developing players. Who has it now? What can we see that are indicators of potential talent? Um, that's that's, that's can, why you have first and second teams. Yeah, so I want to definitely talk about that and kind of how clubs are structured, their yeah. different competitive levels and, and things like that. Uh, definitely want to get into that here in a second. But in terms of are there specific things you can see at the – 11, 12, or 12, 13, that you would say, you know, there's potential, right? The, the, the mighty P word that is, I think, cuts across every club sport as people are trying to, to progress and move up to either get to college or some sort of professional ranks. But is, are there specific characteristics or traits that you look at and say, yeah, that, that player is on a path to be talented, we have to look at a, you know, we, we have to understand that talent is not static. You know, it's, we can look at in a moment, a player and look at them physically. What are their physical qualities? Not just their physical size, their physical qualities, balance, agility, explosiveness, speed, power, strength, all 
physical qualities. These are the sometimes the easiest things to see. But then um, what kind of tools do they have? What does that mean? Well, technical ability. They Do they have good comfort level with the ball? What is it that they do well now? Is it dribbling? Is it passing? Is it receiving? Is it playing back to pressure? Is it when the ball is in the air? Like when I was at Midwestern, I recruited a kid who's a doctor now who turned out to be an excellent player for us at Midwestern. And one of the reasons I recruited him was because he scored 27 goals uh, in his club team in San Antonio as a senior, and 18 of them were with his head. <laughs> That's a very unique skill. So technically, so physically, technically, tactically, mm -hmm. what is their problem solving like? What's their decision making like? What is the player's potential for learning like? When you're recruiting a kid to college or you're looking at a kid in, even in youth soccer, you're trying to understand what their potential is to learn. Some coachability. Well, sometimes it's coachability. Yeah. Sometimes it's coachability. That's certainly a factor, but sometimes it's just, you know, kids, kids can be a little one dimensional mm -hmm. when you look at their problem solving and their learning. And especially today, it's changed over 30 years. I think um, they were not as dependent, of course, 30 years ago on technology. We talked about watching TV and watching games or getting out and watching games live. But mm -hmm. now there are so many other distractions that cut into problem solving, decision making. So what is their potential to learn? Where, where when we need to pay attention as coaches, as managers, Sometimes kids start out on one place on the field and they gravitate to another place on the field because they're technical capabilities, mm -hmm. because they're problem solving. And then, of course, their attitudes, psychology, the science of the mind. What's their attitude like? What's their level of intrinsic motivation like? What is their response to adversity and competition? So there's a lot of things that, and they these things don't occur in isolation, obviously, the technical, tactical, physical, and psychological. They are associated, and they give you and show you what the player is made up of. Now it's our job to say, okay, well, where's their potential, and how do we bring that out? So our, to take it back to uh, the club soccer level, are clubs doing these types of analyses on players uh, at, at certain age groups, or let me just ask: Are, are you know, what are clubs doing today to cover this type of aspect? And I'm, I'm sure it's like other clubs and other sports, right? Some clubs may have the ability and the resources yeah. to, to to do this, yeah. while some don't, right? So, yeah. are but are the you know. Are some clubs or most clubs doing this type of work with the players at these, you know, early teen ages or is it later? How's this work? Well, the evaluation of players is an ongoing process. You know, club coaches evaluate players 
um, a lot of different ways. If you play against teams in your own age group, you notice players, you evaluate them, you get to prefer or like them as far as that goes. So when you're looking at the club environment, I mean, uh, when you have your teams, every day is an evaluation. Really, yeah, I yeah. don't mean that much. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You see your kids, you see your kids, you see your players 160 or 150 times between training and games a year at the competitive level. So it's like tryouts are a very small part of it. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about, you know, kid sports and club sports. And uh, I know from my experience and, you know, 20 years of club sports, the tryouts really meant very little. Yep. Like a lot of teams were already picked. There may have, there may be one or two spots that yep. remain at the, at the signing point or, or, you know, whatever that's called. I don't know. I'm not sure what it's called in, in soccer signing day or whatever, but um, there was really maybe one or two spots available and they were probably down to three or four kids that they've been watching all, all season prior and have been trying to recruit them over. And we could spend a a whole podcast series of podcasts on tryouts and all that, but um, to, to kind of tie back to uh, talent and all that, it feels like you're talking about a big aspect is soccer IQ decision-making items like that. Is that how, is that how it's referred to in soccer? Is it soccer IQ? Is it mental ability? How do y'all how do y'all talk about IQ at the in, in, in club soccer? Well, decision making, but learning has to be a part of it. What's their learning potential? And this is all a work in progress. I mean, the decision making. I always talk about now that. Soccer games are a lot like learning how to drive a car. At first, when you're 15, you're like, well, it's all in here. The steering wheel, the gear shift, the brake, the gas. No, 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 no. That's only part of it. All the gauges and the speedometer and everything, everything that's happening on the outside, all the other cues, stop signs, yellow lights, red lights, green lights, yield lanes, turnabouts. The whole nine yards. So you're assimilating that. So you start to talk about decision making. It's a lot like driving a car when you have a, even if you're playing nine aside as a 12 year old, there are eight other of your teammates. There are nine other of the opposition. They're further, they're closer. Some have the ball. Some are good athletes. Some are not. Some are technicians. Some are not. So you're, Training your brain in order to, what do I pay attention to? What's most important for me to pay attention to here? And everybody's brain's different about that. For sure. So, um, so, And you're also, you have differences in opinions between coaches. Some coaches, some coaches are like, I just want really good athletes. Some coaches are really good athletes who are mature about competing and are not afraid to get after people and express themselves and apply themselves, their physical nature 
and their mental stability um, and hardness. So <clears throat> it's different. Uh, there's no one size fits all. Mm-hmm. You can look at um, clubs, whether they are clubs as youth or pro clubs at different levels, and they have playing personalities. I mean, the difference between Real Madrid, the Galacticos, and Atletico Madrid is a difference in how these clubs historically play and the kind of players that fit into that environment. So you're talking about uh, the philosophy, the coaching philosophy of the the managers and, and coaches that drive a certain way that they will play some of the way that they play some of it's the philosophy of the coach but after carlo enchilati leaves real madrid and becomes the next manager of the national team of brazil real madrid has a fiber in the way that they play and have played over the course of the history of their club that some of that they will not deviate from some of it is because they have the money to buy the players that they need to play that way. Okay. Right? So it's like Atletico. Atletico is not going to try to play like Real Madrid. They are not folks with silver spoons sticking out of their mouth. <laughs> They're a working class cup. Just like in Holland, the difference between Ajax and Feindhort. Feindhort is a working man's club, and they play that way. That is their culture. That is their history. Is that so, aggressive, physical? Yeah, just certain certain qualities or, and characteristics that players who fit in that environment versus Ajax, who is pretty squeaky clean, a lot of really nice soccer. Um, so you're going to find it's going to be tied a little bit. That's why at the youth level. I mean, you can look at North Texas, and North Texas has always been this combination of Texas athletes, Texas mentalities. It is what has sustained player development. And then we get a few players out of there that are pretty technical. They have some special qualities that differentiate them from other people. And you can look back through history uh, of 40 years um, Mm -hmm. uh, on the men's and the women's side. But some of what has been absolutely part of the fiber of players coming out of Texas on the men's and the women's side has been athleticism and attitude. Um, That's that's so uh, would you throw that in the intangibles category? Is that a. A word I'll use in soccer. It's just, it's just mentality. It's look, look at the um, the old classic league. I mean, to get into the old classic league and to bang it out over the fall and the spring seasons t- took a certain amount of durability psychologically. Now, it's the, sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but the, when you talk about classic, these are some of the terms that I've I've heard not being really super familiar with with soccer. I mean, classic league. To me, that brings that's a certain level of play. Is that unique to North Texas, or is that a a standard classification for a certain level of play across all clubs in the U.S.? Or you know, so maybe that's a lead into how is soccer kind of structured and level of competition and all that. And then, then please go back to the, your your example. Well, no, I mean when you look at the landscape, and I always 
use Germany. Germany is the size of the state of Montana. Seven states, seven regional leagues, seven national training centers, 20 Bundesliga two on the men's side, 18 Bundesliga one. That is Montana. So to try and apply how leagues are structured, mm-hmm. well, in Germany, it's pretty easy. In the United States, there are some similarities between Southern California and Eastern New York, but there are also huge differences because of vast geographical areas like Texas. If you could take all the, and it's only four hours to Houston, it's three hours to Austin, another hour and a half to San Antonio, and then four hours to the Rio Grande Valley. And we used to get kids out of the Rio Grande Valley as well as out of El Paso, 12 hour drive. So it, it, its structure is a little bit determined by that environment. Like you go to New England, Eastern New York, Eastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey, um, there are some similarities, but you don't have the geography to deal with that you do in Texas. The offset is you have all these kids playing soccer. Right, right now, things are a little bit because the different playing platforms uh, between USYS, US Club, E64. So now you've got leagues split in three or four or five directions versus in the early 80s, there was a there was a pathway and that lent itself to some continuity, you know, and so that's changed. That's changed. A side question here. Can a kid who's from the Rio Grande Valley or South Texas, can they play on a North Texas team? Are there restrictions? Is there a governing body that says, no, you have to play within your region? No, no, that would be that. In fact, that was tried in Northern California and it was litigated. You can't tell people where they can play and how they can play. And that was litigated. In, okay. in Northern California. So Kelly Wilson, who played in my 83 state team, and while well, I was the assistant with the U19s uh, women, um, she started out in Midland, Texas. Yeah. So she started out playing with boys. It was good. You know, it's one of the things we found with young women who are athletic, go ahead and play them with boys and make them better in the women's game. But at a certain point, she moved to Dallas to come play club soccer. All right. So she, she finally had to come and get in on her side. So yeah, kids move around. I, I know there are players right now and these are people with means who fly their kids around a little bit in order to get them in the club environment they think they want them to be in. Yeah, I think this may be a good segue, actually, Dave, and we've uh, spoken in the past, getting to know each other. I think you referred to it as competitive choices or competitive alternatives. Sure. Um, uh, I thought it was an interesting concept and kind of the way I understood it was, and it's been a while, so please correct me here. 
competitive choices and competitive alternatives were either at a certain level of play and, you know, should kids play, is it better to be on a better team uh, where they may not get as much playing time or is it better to be on a, you know, a mid-level team within the same club and they play a bigger role and in, in all that? Or is it also, or, you know, is it more of, you know what, soccer is not my, my game. I think I'm really going to be interested in either playing another sport or taking on a whole new, you know, music is my, is my thing now. And just didn't really work out for me from a soccer and competition perspective, sports perspective. So I guess I'm saying, talk a little bit about your competitive choices, competitive alternatives. Well, Thinking. Always good if in the beginning you know what you want out of it in the end. And not everybody does. And I think we're we're seeing that where 40 years ago, 35 years ago, the competitive top of the pyramid was smaller. So now there's a preponderance of opportunity, whether it's with this platform, that platform. When you say platform, what do you mean? Well, you, you have U.S. Club Soccer, you have the ECNL, the ECRL, the NPL, USYSA, you have DPL. You have all of these different and competing platforms. So it's a little bit like a marketplace. There's not really – it is a lot about marketing right now. It's good because people have choices. It's bad because people have choices. <laughs> because to be good at anything, and I'm not advocating that 11 or 13-year-old needs to lock it all in. I think there's a massive value in kids playing um, a variety of sport. Yeah. Um, different sports. Um, different so coaches regions. say that. Sorry to interrupt here, but coaches say that they say in the sports that I've been involved with, you should play multiple sports. Yeah. They, is that true? Or yeah. is that what parents want to hear? No, I think it's how you manage it, but I think it's beneficial for, for those kids to play multiple sports, whether it's in club, whether it is in middle school or high school. Mm -hmm. the, the question is, how do you manage it? I'll give you some examples. Um, Parents will set up the conditions and club directors don't want to put their foot down. They don't want to tick anybody off. Mm -hmm. They think they can abstain from influencing people. But my kid's going to play basketball, play soccer, and run track all at the same time. So I say, well, that's an awful lot. Let's look at the calendar figure out how are you going to juggle cross-country training and soccer training in a week? How about the meets? What can we figure out how to manage? And then understand, is this doable? Because on the back end, if you want to do everything, you're going to come to a point, and I've seen it. Well, my kid feels a little burnt out right now. Can they skip training? And I'm like, well, I didn't set the conditions up. You set the conditions up. 
Yeah. You set the conditions up, and now you want, by the way, you're paying a lot, considerable amount of money for this. So you're setting up the conditions where what you're teaching your kid is to opt out. So you, one of the biggest things that we do with parents and players is to teach them how to make choices. Not every kid that came through North Texas or South Texas that we looked at as a talent all ended up in soccer. They didn't. Yeah. They they made not surprising. That no. that that they made choices to do other things. And coaches find that hard to let go of. But I have experiences where like when I ran the Western Soccer Club in Florida, uh, we had a young lady who ended up running cross country at UCLA. She was one of the best in the country, but she came as a junior and she said like, I don't want to stop playing soccer. And she said, well, let's lay out the schedules. What do you need to be at for cross country? When is training important? When are meets important? Do they, because you make the team better because you like to play soccer. Um, we, we can't, have you missing all of the college showcases? For sure. All right. So we laid out six months. Okay. What do you absolutely need to be at? Okay. And I have to say, she was one of the best. She almost never missed anything in terms of balancing out training. She'd go to cross country. She'd come to soccer. She was a really good student and she probably, I know she did, she prioritized those two things and pushed other things to the side in order to make it work because these two things were her priority versus kids and or parents that will try and do two or three different things mm -hmm. and still want to do everything else in their life. So choice is a huge component at some point as to whether you're going to optimize your talent and it's going to amount to anything, or are you going to play a lot of different things? So when I was directing the, the cup program in Cincinnati, you know, we had three really distinct levels, you know, here's a Cincinnati kind of grassroots rec soccer. You could play, didn't matter if you were 15 or five play, play as little or as much as you want. Mm -hmm. um, an intermediate level that we call Cincinnati United, sometimes two sport athletes who we would have loved to have and selected into the premier level for our teams playing in the regional league, the national league, but they didn't want to be encumbered by that kind of commitment. They wanted to do other things. So great play at this level. So then we got the kids with the greatest level of commitment and intrinsic motivation, which is highly underrated uh, and underevaluated at the top of the pyramid. And they were good players, but we knew that their commitment and their interest drove their participation, coming to training, travel, the whole nine yards. So that importance of finding a place for everybody based upon what they wanted to do, what they wanted to commit to, what their talent was. And it takes some work to do that. 
And it also takes some honesty. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking too, because one thing I, when I talk to parents who have younger kids in, in travel sports and they know that, that, you know, our family's been in club and travel sports for a long time. We're on the, the backside of it now with kids moving on, but is, you know, you want to have that open dialogue with the coach. Don't try to hide the fact that you want to play another sport, especially at the younger ages uh, or really ever. Right. But what I found helpful was when we were having these conversations, Hey, one of our boys would like to play baseball in addition to hockey um, is have a conversation with the, the kid and say, you know, if you had a, a hockey game and a baseball game on the same day, which is more important to you? Oh, hockey dad. Yeah. Definitely hockey. All right. Well, we're going to go sit down together and talk to your baseball coach and say, if there's a conflict, between baseball and hockey, hockey's our first choice sport. We love playing baseball. We love being on the team. Have that conversation with the coach. Let them know. Kind of address that conflict at the beginning of it. And if the baseball coach says, you know, it's really not going to work out. I'm trying to take the team in a different direction. Then it's not a fit. But just have that open dialogue with the coach and kind of iron out the scenarios. Yeah. I mean, there's so many it comes down to, and this is where I think the conversation is going to go. Look, there's 24 hours in a day. There's seven days in a week. You have to understand that there's, aside from sport, there's life outside of it. There's travel now. I mean, the travel of yeah, talk about that. How extensive? I mean, are these clubs, these top end clubs, are they traveling nonstop year round or? The, the domestic travel is a whole other issue. I'm just talking about people who will commit to driving from Keller to have their kids play at the Texans or at Solar. So three days a week. And maybe it's an hour there, an hour back. Where are, you said solar and Texans, where are they located? Well, they're located in central Dallas, you know, and on the uh, on the north side of Dallas. Okay. So my point is, you don't have travel should be considered oh, you're, you're going three days a week to training, and then you're yeah. going to play your local league matches. See, yeah. That consumes time. It consumes gas expense. It consumes a lot. So very different. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Very different than if you're going to play in a at a at a more grassroots level or participation oriented, and you're going to play in your part of town. So maybe you're yeah you are training three days a week, but it takes you. 15 minutes to get there with not very much angst, you know, coming across the Georgia. The stress of, yeah, the stress of traffic. and Exactly. So people don't think about this. Yeah. I had parents uh, in in past teams and whatnot who were traveling from one year in hockey. We had Houston to, to Dallas. Then I had volleyball where we had, you know, Oklahoma City down to Dallas. And you know, parents would justify and go, well, it really gives me a great opportunity to spend dedicated time with my kid. And it's, you know, homework time. They can really focus on our way back from practice. They can wrap up their homework. And 
Well, it takes it just and, and, and in does a, it <laughs> and honest honestly listen if the piano teacher that you want to take lessons from is an hour away musicians do that gym gymnastics if the gymnast coach gymnastics coach that you want to be involved with in the gymnastics club is an hour away you can exercise your prerogative to travel an hour, four days a week there, an hour back, plus your meets. You can, I mean, it's choice. Sure. I mean, so, but to your point, you know, don't gloss it over for something that it's not either. Yeah, that's exactly I mean, right, in my opinion. I, I mean, I mean, if it works for you, it works for your kid, it works for your relationship, it works for your pocketbook, it works for your time schedule, then great. I just I just look at parents that have three kids, two are in soccer, they're on different teams, they're different ages, they practice different days at different places, and then their third child plays a different sport entirely or is in music or gymnastics or tennis or or whatever. And I, I look at the mayhem. So my parents, my parents would have never done that. Yeah. It, it would have it, never done that. It was my responsibility to get myself to training and to do the things um, that I needed to do, especially when I got to be 16 and 17. So um, and it, it's complicated. So now you can talk about the travel, um, you know, going from North Texas to Florida for one showcase or one event, North Texas to Northern, uh, to uh, North Carolina for another, mm -hmm. uh, North Texas to Northern California or to Surf Cup in Southern California. So- Is this common? Is this, is this standard operating procedure in the club soccer world? It's the way it's evolved. It's the way it's evolved. Why has it, it evolved to that? Well, because- in our country, which is not the size of Germany and the state of Montana, we have a preoccupation. Like if California and Texas were closer together, the California coaches and the Texas coaches want to play against each other. And the leagues are set up. Those platforms are set up to not only deal with regional schedules, but national schedules. So but there's... What we've done is we've copied what we've seen in the NBA. We've copied what we've done and seen in the NHL or the NFL. So now when you explain that, like my colleagues, let's say in Germany or England, and they're like, well, what age do kids do that? I'm like 13. And they're like, never traveled more than 30 minutes to play a football match. So is that a cultural thing or is that hey we've got enough competition here locally like for for soccer and for baseball why would a club team ever have to leave the north texas area to play some of the, the top competition it's an american is marketing thing. is it a marketing tool it's hey, an american thing it's an american thing we do it because somebody imaged it imagined it and it is part of the fabric of our sporting culture it is, it is what we have grown into.
Yeah. You can go to Eastern New York if you want to. It's very similar. The only difference is you can hit six states going from Eastern New York, but Eastern New York teams still go to Florida. They still go to Disney. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can go to California, which is two massive markets in Southern California, Northern California, but they still go to Texas. Are, are programs and clubs using this to, to attract kids? Say, so, hey, if you come play here, we're going to play in Southern California and see the beautiful beaches, uh, you know, Manhattan Beach, or we're going to go play in Florida and everybody's got a chance to you know, go to Disney. Sure they are. Sure, it's part, it is part of the fabric. And why do we do it? What? We're Americans. This is the way that we think. But we have the resources mm -hmm. to do it. It is a foreign concept. Like if you just took everything from Germany West to Spain, say, well, that would be about Utah over to California, about. Uh, so just go talk to the Europeans about, well, let's take, now I'm not talking about pro clubs that have under 19 teams and reserve teams, and they, they do travel. But just kind of competitive platform, competitive clubs, but they're not in the upper echelons, either in the men or the women. Talk to them about, let's get a league together between Spain, Germany, France, Belgium, Holland, Italy. They would go like, how are you going to do that? I mean, the pro clubs are totally different. We have transferred all of these professional values and what we see in the NBA, in the NHL, Major League Baseball, and we've transferred it into soccer environment. And some, some problems that we have, the organization of leagues or travel can't solve. I mean, you, like what? Well, it's not going to change the distance between Dallas and Los Angeles. <laughs> True. That is not going to change. Or how about the distance between Dallas and Atlanta? It's not going to change. What's in between? Well, we've got Louisiana. We've got Mississippi. We've got Alabama. We, and by the way, all those states, Tennessee, we've gotten good players out of. They're good clubs. But they're not in close enough proximity of let's say a three hour drive, which is less than from Dallas to Houston. So none of that's going to change. So what do we do? We change and we apply more money, more resources of time and money in order to at some level go, we got to go travel to play. Is this working? Is this increasing or is well, it uh identifying more talent? Is it enhancing our national team programs? Is it making us more competitive on the international stage? Talent's not going to, talent doesn't have anything to do with it. I mean, at the end of the day, um, I'll give you a comparison. I remember in 1983, the best players in Dallas, that means kids who were playing in the top club programs what were the top club programs in 1983 here in Dallas? You had Horse Bertle and the Comets. You had the Longhorns, and Dick Hall. You had um, 
the Sting, you had uh, Defeaters, Rami Badopia. I mean, there there were six or seven main clubs in Dallas, maybe eight if you stretched it. Okay. So the top players, those means those players were at least playing at an ODP level that was a regional level, and their their pathway in competition was the North Dallas Chamber League, and then all right, we're gonna. You know, we're gonna we're gonna do something really unusual. We're gonna go to the Junior Orange Bowl in Miami, or we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do something like that. The best players in Dallas were paying a thousand dollars a year. Back then. A thousand dollars a year. When I heard that, I don't think playing soccer, I'm not sure playing soccer, I spent two hundred dollars a year. And if I did, my father would have said. Um, what are you doing to throw in here? Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, like I'm not taking the third job to pay for soccer for you. So now I look at. You know what clubs are paying today? Can you comment oh, yeah. on that? I mean, I mean, just your coaching fees and everything are $2,500, $3,000. Then you have your uniform package. Then you can lop on, you know, all of your travel and everything. So. Sure. It's unbelievable. My 92 team, 92 age uh, birth year team mm -hmm. at Serena with Julie Ertz. And we had a we, Sarah Jackson, Ellen Parker. I mean, uh, Nikki Hill. We had five internationals in that in that group. Uh, it all went to big time schools. I think we had one kid that went to a division three and she was. She was good, but she wanted something different academically. Um, you know, we in one year we went to Disney. We went to the competition in North Carolina around the women's final four. We went to Surf Cup twice. We played in the region league, the far west region league, where some of our games were like in Northern California. So we we did all that. And I was like, man, you guys are spending a lot of money. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. I want my daughter to go to a big four-year school. And so, and the kids were good enough to yeah. do it. They proved it. But, but is it working? Well, I always, my question now is, well, what's going to be the top end? Like, when will it be too much and parents... Or families go like, you can't spend $10,000 a year on soccer. I don't care who's coaching. I don't care how good the competition is. And in terms of how it affects professional development, players into NWSL, college, pro, MLS, USL, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, or national teams. I, I don't know that we have evidence that it's doing anything stupendous. So uh, again, you have to look into the attitude. So during the under 20 men's world cup recently and our under twenties, Mike Varis, Mikey Varis, our under 20 coach, he did a great job. 
And this was a good team. This was, and this is a tough age group for us because us as Americans, us as Americans to interact internationally, it's tough under 20s. We can compete at the U17s on the men's side for a lot of reasons, but the differentiation between 17 and 20, we have a lot of guys on contracts now. We have a lot of guys playing uh, in pro clubs. It's tough. So we kind of waltzed through the group games. We waltzed through the round of 16. Then we met Uruguay in the quarterfinal. And I said, okay, this is a really good Uruguayan team. They're typically Uruguayan. They have qualities out of a country of 5 million or 9 million, whatever it is. And when, so, when is this? What time period are we talking about? Is this recent? Is it Pat in the past? The U20 World Cup just got through. Oh, this very. This just got through. This just happened. Okay. All right. Uruguay beat Italy in the final. Okay. So. When we meet Uruguay in the quarters, they are typically Uruguayan. They are stubborn. They are good. They have their way to play. We struggle with it. We lose in the quarterfinals 2-0. And the immediate reaction, the immediate reaction on social media and just the conversation that's a that's a country of nine million. We have 330 million. How can we lose to them? That is so disproportionately backwards to think about it like that. You, if you use that thinking with the NBA, why do we have all with a country of 330 million people and a really good NBA structure? Why are all these foreigners coming in here uh, <laughs> that have um, different skills, different experiences? have different playing profiles should, I mean, you have this kid that just came in at seven, five or seven, six or seven, seven, whatever he is. Over the Spurs. Yeah. Well, I mean, so we make these ludicrous kinds of analogies. Well, they only have 9 million people. We have 330 million. We should win. Well, so what's the one line answer to that question? Why are we not as competitive with? Well, we're pretty competitive. Well, we're yeah, competitive. I'm not saying we're not competitive, but it, we're not breaking through and we didn't win the under 20s championship. It's hard to win. It's hard to win. It's not easy. I mean, it's not easy to win on the international level. The difference between performing but getting results and winning a championship internationally is not easy. People think, oh, we'll just throw another hundred million at it. No, not, not really. No, you have to have the players. You have to have the coach. It's not only what happens to a kid at 11 through 15. There's a lot. I look at Clint Dempsey who played for us and went to two years of college at Furman and just was a, transformation he grew up he grew up in from being a young man to a man and everything else fell together so we think it's about throwing more money at it more money won't solve all the problems you know how about we play too many games we play too 
many games. And in playing too many games, we don't have enough dedicated time for training. Training is as or more important than just getting a bunch of games. Is there a ratio you try to target if you're say in your in your role? Three trainings for one game. Three for one. Three, three for one. Three for one. This is the complexity now, even in even in pro soccer, because you have cup competitions going on inside of league seasons. You have the Europa League, the Champions League. You have uh, windows that compress the league season because here's a two week window for an international break. So now the best players, the mo- the the best performers for their national teams are away playing and they have to come back and they have to step into the league season. That's why you have all these injuries. That's why you Mm -hmm. have fatigue, but money drives part of this. Yeah, for sure. It does. For sure. It does. So, wow. Isn't this an interesting parallel that money is driving things at the youth level and money is driving things at the professional and what is the outcome of all that? We're selling a lot of uniforms. <laughs> we sell a lot of soccer balls. We do have some pretty nice facilities. You know, not all of them are great, but we have some pretty nice facilities. But yeah, at the, I, end of the day to what end? Yeah, uh, I know in other sports we used to talk about you know club sports uh, at the youth level is. As the years went by, it felt like the offseason got shorter and shorter until at some point it almost felt like there was no offseason. And so I want to definitely get into talking about one of the biggest things I think that, that we've talked about in, uh, in our previous conversations is that value of the coach and that relationship of the coach, to the players and probably at the club level, you know, coach to, to families and parents. But let me I wanted to kind of ask you this. Is this money drive aspect, is that driven from coaches who are trying to make a living at the club youth level and have, you know, coaching gigs that go year round inside the season, obviously outside the season, do they make extra money with outside instruction, that kind of thing? Is that also what kind of drives this? The, the money aspect of it and the fact that the off season gets shorter and shorter. Is that the case in soccer? I wouldn't put it all on the coaches. I would not put it all on the coaches. The coaches are operating in the environment that has been created. So I wouldn't put it all on the coaches. And I don't think you have a, an abundance of people that have time as coaches, you 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 have to spend twenty hours coaching mm-hmm. uh, a, a day to say like, okay, well, I'm coaching two club teams, so that's six sessions a week. You have games on the weekend. <clears throat> I mean, if you were really motivated and it had young legs, you could go out and say, okay, I'm going to do two more hours a week. And if you want to come in and get, you know, technical training or small group training. Yeah. I'll make, I'll make another 
X number of dollars doing it. But I, I, I would not entirely put this all on the coaches. You know, this, the system um, does not have an inordinate amount of influence that is balanced. And everybody's got talk a little bit about that. What what do you what do you mean? Well, people people are stakeholders. It's not these club coaches. owners. Are they? No, I'm talking about governing bodies. Okay. I'm talking about state associations. I'm talking about U.S. club soccer. I'm talking about all of the different players that are stakeholders. I mean. They have a little bit of responsibility in this, good, bad, or indifferent. Mm -hmm. They all have their interests in it that are exerted in different ways. They're all exchanging money. So I just look at it and I'm like, this is the setup that the coaches have to deal with. So eventually, can we get to a point and and don't confuse government governance with setting up playing competitions. Like I look at our governance structure. Mm-hmm. You know, we're United States Soccer Federation. It's a federation, so the members have a say in it. The state association. Although they're set up as a 501c3, they have self-governing principles exerted by the membership. If they don't like something, they can change it. See what I'm see what I'm saying? Yep. You know, US Club Soccer is a little bit different because I, I, it's an entity that's owned. And there are a couple of entities out there like that. So it's complex. It's not very um it's it it doesn't have a very good interfacing within the pyramid of all these organizations that have to interact with one another. Sometimes there's more insulation between them than there is interaction. But so we we all have a little bit of responsibility here. My question will always be: all right, when do we get the right people in the seats at the right time? to start to have the conversation to create less of this um, buffering and operating in isolation. And we start to understand that more is not always better. Right. And and this is quality over quantity kind of thing, right? I mean, how does this happen a little bit? It's got to, it's got to happen when the right people are in the right seats at the right time and who look at one another and say, like, yeah, pull us together here a little bit. Yeah. Can't gotcha. just we can't just continue to do this as if it were um just a mechanism to generate revenue and spend it to sell uniforms and buy them. You know, so yeah. th- this is for and and I found look, you know, coaches have a little bit of influence over this too. So coaches can exert themselves across club lines, across state lines, where they could decide and say, you know what, 
we're going to change. We're going to change things. We're going to try and construct um, a framework that makes a little bit more sense yep. and stop looking at it from 50,000 feet and start looking at it from neighborhoods, communities, metropolitan areas. And how does, I think that's the step that will make things um, that will be noticeable in making the experience for players and the eventual production of talent, you will see a difference from that. But that's not the space we're in right now. It's going to swing at some point. The question is, what will instigate that? Okay. No. So you talked about coaches there for a second. I really wanted to get into uh what we had talked about, you know, kind of the value of, of a coach or the, the, the coach's role and, you know, part of, uh, you know, welcome to the club podcast here is to provide some level of insight and education or, uh, you know, tools and tips for listeners as they're either getting into, uh, club sports. Can you talk a little bit about how, parents helping their kids or helping, you know, that which club did we go play for? Um, you know, what are, what are attributes from a coaching perspective do parents need to identify or see, or do you have to, Hey, we just need to play here. Uh, this is, feels like the best fit and you learn as you go. But are, I guess what I'm asking is there are certain things that players and parents can look at and go, Hey, I really think this is a great fit from, for my kid at 13 she's i think he's this type of coach how would you talk about that i think it's no different than looking for a music teacher or a gymnastics coach you know some of it is the research that you can do about what's the track record of this coach not only what the medals are that they've won or the championships that they have won but where have their kids, where have their players eventually ended up? What kind of an experience did they have? So, you know, when you're talking about the, you know, the transition into competitive soccer from rec soccer, you know, I think you can look at things like over a couple of years, what's the retention? Kind of retention mm -hmm. does this coach have? Are they club hopping? Are they at this club one year and that club the next year? Yeah, I mean, you can look and, you know, if somebody's at a club for 10 years, it says something about commitment. Uh, if you're at five clubs in 11 years, you know, you can ask that question. That's the other thing parents need to understand is that nothing is really off limits. You can ask any question. If a coach is uncomfortable with it or a director is uncomfortable with it, that's not your problem. That's their problem. So can they answer it? And do you understand it? So you can talk about, and parents ask the wrong question sometimes. They ask the wrong question. Well, what's, what is your philosophy on playing? And, and I'm like, when parents ask you that, it's like, well, you know, what kind of background do you have as a parent? You can learn all the buzzwords. Mm -hmm. 
right? You can learn all the buzzwords. Unless you have an experience in the game, you don't really know. I mean, so you have to ask the right questions too. Listen, so my daughter or my son's going to come play for you as an 11 and 12 year old. What's happened in the past five years? Where do your 11 and because coaches will get put into areas where they're really good. They're really good. And one of the important factors in club soccer is finding coaches who at 10, 11, and 12 can prepare kids for the next couple of stages. There's That's a very specific need in club soccer. So, you know, my daughter's son's going to come play for you as an 11 or 12-year-old. Well, you know, typically how those teams, after you've let them go, have those teams, have those players stayed in the club? Um, have they been selected into either an A team or a B team at the next age group up? You know, what's your what's your track record with that? It's not only about licenses or diplomas, but you have to, you know, you really want to do research on a coach. Go watch them coach in a game. Yeah, I think that's absolutely don't, invaluable. We've done that in our in our past too. Don't, don't go watch them train their teams. Go watch them. Go you your eyes won't lie to you typically. You know, see what their demeanor is like. See what the interaction. Sometimes they can be good coaches, but it's just not the right fit for your son or your daughter because of the way they interact. And um you you have to thir- so this another this takes time doesn't it you know you can have the people down the street talk to you about what their experiences were the whole nine yards but you need to do your homework because you're going to sign up for a substantial financial commitment and time commitment you, you ought to do your own work yeah you can talk to people but i would go observe coaches in training, I would observe them in games. Um, and let's face it, soccer has a network. That network is pretty tight. You can usually do a little bit of guided discovery because that network is tight. People get reputations for things that are good or not so good, you know, in terms of how they interact with people. Or So it's there's no exact science to it, you know? Uh, I think the the fallout of that is, well, in three months, there's a hard turn in things. And now this is where the club hopping comes in. You know, well, I'm just gonna pay my bill here and take my kids someplace else. That's sketchy to do. You need to, you know, for coaches, they should have a commitment when you select players in, look, there's, it's always easy when things are going good, but kids are going to fall out of form. They're going to grow. They're going to change. They're going sure. to be mature. So, but parents also need to know that it's not going to be easy. Now, you can go play for participation reasons. Performance and development is not an issue. It's just enjoyment. And so there are no expectations. But if you want to expect something, then it's not always going to be in a straight trajectory. Where, oh no, it's all going upward. No, it's it's going to go down. It's going to go up. It's going to go sideways, left and right. You need to get in for the long haul 
and accept that it's going to be that. So how how does the coach manage through that? You know, I mean, it's easy when things are going good. Hey, yeah. things are going good. How do you manage kids? How do you manage the environment? How do you manage participation or playing time? Or how do you manage when things aren't good? You know what? That's the same problem you have with pros. I mean, it's not all in a straight line for pros. For sure. For sure. It's not. Yeah. So, Adversity, injuries. Exactly. Playing out of form, playing into form, coming back from injury. Yeah. Uh, other injuries in the club or in the age group or in the team. You know, instead of playing as a center midfielder, you're going to have to play as a left back a little bit. And it's going to take you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. You're probably going to have some uh, wacky experiences become uh, because of it. But in the end, it makes you a better player because you become resilient, become you, you become adaptive. So as a parent, you need to support this. As a coach, you also need to communicate it. You need to be able to proactively. I think that's the hard part of managing you. It's you can you can get anybody off the street to say, hey, we're we're going to guest play you from the B team to the A team. Hey, we're going to, last year you played on the B team. We guest played you. We're going to select you onto the A team. You could get an Android to do that. <laughs> but managing people through circumstances and times when they're not very, you know, it's not going very good. Well, that takes a little bit more art than science. For sure it does. Yeah. yeah and that that whole concept of, of guest player, I have thought about that topic and I think that could be an entire uh, podcast and we'll probably yeah. get into that at some point. So I'd love to circle back with you on that. But uh, you've been super generous with your time today. What I wanted to do is just in these last few minutes, you know, what's, what's on the top of your mind? What are, you know, things that maybe not... Uh, the average parent like myself would be thinking about in terms of club sports or the game of soccer? Like what's, what's top of mind for you these days in the, in respect to the, the club environment across the U S well, it's, you know, th there's no denying the growth at the youth level is over the past 30 years is ridiculous. There's also a little bit of attrition. Um, everybody, I think, legitimately at every level in every organization, they're concerned about cost, you know, and, and the money factor. I think what's really exciting, it, you know, I remember in the late 80s when we when we were awarded the 1994 World Cup, FIFA Men's World Cup. It was mm -hmm. like we had to pinch ourselves. Are you kidding me? Because for me, we were in the World Cup in 50. We did not qualify again until 1990 on the men's side. And 40 years? 40 years. 40 years. Now, so seeing that, all right, we, we host the 94 World Cup. We host tournaments like the, uh, the Gold Cup, like 
next year uh, hosting an international tournament. The Copa America is going to be here. Mm-hmm. In 25, the FIFA World Club Championships are going to be here on the men's side. In 26, the World Cup. In 27, we're hearing that the Women's World Cup is going to be bid on. So hosting in 99, I mean, to see how the game has grown that we're integral parts of the international community and we're hosting international championships and competitions. I think it's like every day I, I, I pinch, I look out my office window here at Union Station in Kansas City. I have this great view of the World War I Memorial and Museum right across the street. But I pinch myself and go like, all of this that's hosted in our environment, that's in addition to a women's and a men's pro league. Um, a USL um, component that there's they've started a women's component that's going to be incredible. The men's side of League One and the championship of USL is incredible. I mean, if you could have tried to imagine this in 1983, we would have gone like so far away, but like. To see all that and the way that we have come is just every day impressive to me. That that growth and that yeah. maturing is that a, we call that you know the maturity of American soccer yeah. and the visibility of it. Uh, you know the visibility of soccer brought about by streaming and and. Um, just domestically, you can turn on ESPN, you know, today on Saturday, you can turn on ESPN uh, on your streaming device or on your home TV, and you can find five or six USL games. Mm-hmm. You can find MLS games. You can So it's an integral part of the sporting landscape. It's like, it's amazing. To me, I think about that a lot and think about how far it has come. Um, so apart and away from all these challenges that we have, like um, some that are financial, some that are organizational and structural in terms of leagues or playing platforms, you know, apart and away from all that, uh, just how big a player soccer has become in our environment domestically. Then I look at the confederation. I mean, look at Canada, you know, when, when we were struggling in the 1980s to qualify for a world cup and came close on the men's side, Canada were pretty good. They went through a similar drought through the 90s, the 2000s, and now they're, they've kind of swung back. They found themselves the woman. John Herdman's done a great job, first with the women and now with the men. So uh, 
it, it the confederation has changed. Mexico is not exactly the El Tri of um, 30 years ago. You know, mm-hmm. they're there now. Not, so I see all these changes and how pronounced it's been in the confederation. And I just think it's really it's it's come a long way. So yeah. it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. Yep. I'm sure that it is. Well, Dave, you have been just absolutely so gracious with your time. I know you've got a ton going on, obviously, as we talked about on the outset with uh, with your significant roles that you're playing in different organizations um, for this great game. Um, I assume it's still the most popular game in the world. I think so. I bet you do think that, but no, I, I think do. everybody would agree with that. I think everybody would agree with that. I mean, are there other sports? I mean, I look at hockey and I just turn on the TV and look at Wimbledon. Look at yeah. tennis. A whole new generation of um, players on the men's and on the women's side. Tennis isn't a very exciting sport, but the fact that we have ascended and that football is still such a predominant sport it doesn't matter if you're in Asia, down under, or in Canada or Belgium. Football is football is the world's most popular sport. Yeah. Well, Dave, thanks again. I really can't uh, tell you how much uh, I appreciate. Uh, I'm sure the listeners are going to take away so much great information. Uh, best of luck to you the rest of the summer. We will catch up soon. And thanks for being a part of Welcome to the Club podcast. Thanks so much, Matt. I appreciate it. Good luck. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for tuning in to this very first episode of Welcome to the Club podcast. It was an absolute treat to have Dave on. His comments around international soccer and U.S. soccer, uh, and specifically some of the club aspects of what he talked about around coaches was very, very helpful in my opinion. Parents spend a lot of time and a lot of money supporting their kids as they play club sports. And the fact that he said that no question is off limits when talking to a coach, I think that's great advice. It's a huge commitment to play club sports. It's a big financial commitment as we talked about, but really at the end of the day, you want your kid to have a great experience. And if development is your, um, main focus and progressing to move forward to the college ranks, for example, I agree that you should vet these coaches um, in a substantial way. Thanks again for listening. Many more episodes to come, hopefully, and uh, have a good rest of the day. We'll see you.